This is transmission five out of seven. Sent five years after the bomb was dropped on New York. My name is L, and this is what I saw. Dealing with the medical needs of affected individuals immediately after a nuclear attack can be broken down into three phases. The first phase is triage, during which patients are prioritized by severity of their injuries. After the triage phase, emergency care is administered, usually during the first 24 hours following the attack. The final phase is long-term care of the affected victims and is dependent on the resources available. If possible, antibiotic treatment and a clean recovery environment to avoid infection should be provided. And remember, long-term care of radiation is complicated by the fact that the scope of the disease may not be immediately apparent. Page 43 of the Atomic Survival Guide For the last few months of Don's medical residency, we lived apart. I was the one who made off with all the best kitchenware, which meant that Don could no longer cook his favorite food, an all-American classic, the hot dog. I scoured the internet for a solution and ended up gifting him what could best be described as a hot dog toaster. The hot dogs were fed into long hot dog-shaped holes, the buns into bun-shaped holes, and then you pulled a lever so they could all be cooked to perfection. Don loved the hot dog toaster. In medical school, subjects were taught by how likely future physicians were to encounter a certain situation in their daily practice. Nutrition was covered in a two-part lecture. Radiation poisoning was covered in one. We decided to leave at daybreak. The faint pounding started up again just as we woke, but we couldn't wait any longer. Don was desperate to get back to Walt, and I felt like once he found his body, the spell would be broken, so I went along with it. We got our bag, put on fresh face masks, and opened the door to the hallway. Don was carrying a baseball bat we'd found, and I was carrying an empty wine bottle. The front door let out directly behind the person still banging away at our door. When we went into the hall, a loud, Huh? escaped me. It felt like a joke. It was a boy, maybe a few years older than Kevin, and even Kevin looked at him in surprise. We walked down the stairs, our weapons dropped to our sides. The boy turned back around and kept banging away at the door. Outside, time still stood still. Suited bodies littered the streets. Their mouths hollowed into perfect O's like they were screaming at us. This is outside now? Kevin said calmly. Yes, this is outside now. Don replied, and we started heading north, back to the hospital. The plan was to get medical supplies, then go back to find Walt. After that, our plan was... vague. We'd head north, always north, always putting distance between us and Ground Zero. But Don's questions from the day before haunted me. Why hadn't anyone come to help? Had we really been abandoned? I scanned the sky as we walked along the littered sidewalk, 
sidestepping melted garbage cans and debris. No helicopters. No military planes. The sky was interrupted only by a few puffy white clouds. We were alone. Everything, no matter where we went, was now an unknown. About a block from the main entrance to the hospital, we suddenly heard an anguished howl behind us. Hesitantly, we stopped and turned around. It was a golden doodle. Its fur was matted and dirty, and for a moment I thought that it was the same one that had tried to bite me two days earlier. But then, out of nowhere, it was joined by another one. They stood next to each other and stared at us, heads level as their paws moved beneath them, slowly coming closer and closer. By the time they were twenty feet away from us, there was at least a dozen of them, sniffing the wind and each other as if conferring about what to do with us. We started to walk faster. They held step. We started to break into a trot, less than a block from the hospital. Again, they followed suit. Run! Don hissed and snatched Kevin up into his arms. I clutched the duffel to my chest and we broke into a sprint. The dog started barking wildly and bounced after us as we weaved around a lopsided newsstand, leapt over the mangled city bikes and into the foyer of the hospital. We fled through the entrance. The glass of the doors was scattered through the lobby. The floor glistened, a sea of sharp glitter. Our feet were safely encased in the thick leather of our boots, but we could hear the dogs behind us yelp as shards of glass dug into their paws. Jumping over smashed tables and chairs in the cafeteria, we kept running as hard as we could. Don't turn around. They're still coming. Just keep going. The sky was above us. The glass ceiling had come down, lay fragmented across the atrium. Elevator! Don panted, Kevin bouncing up and down in his arms. Stairwells! I panted back. We ran past the elevators and Don flung the door open. I was right behind him and turned to shut it. One of the dogs was close enough to snap at my hand. It missed. It jumped up to try again. I closed my eyes and pulled on the door as hard as I could. I could feel something soft smashed between the door and the frame. The dog cried out and jumped backwards, whimpering at me like it was taken aback, like this wasn't part of the game. The dog knocked over some of the pack, and I slammed the door shut and leaned against it. We can't travel outside if there's packs of wild fucking dogs. Don exhaled, putting Kevin down and grabbing his hips as he strained to catch his breath. Fuck, we have to figure out another way to get out of the city. We sat on the ground as the dogs jumped up against the door, their nails clacking loudly, their barks still excited like they were enjoying themselves. We can't drive, but maybe we could bike. I looked at Kevin. You know how to ride a bike? He shook his head. If only there was an underground tunnel or something. Don said, his voice agitated. I stared at him. You're a genius. The door shuddered against my back as one of the larger dogs leaned up against it. I could hear its excited pants through the crack in the door. What are you talking about? 
but Don was already connecting the dots. The subway. We can get out through the subway. The 6 runs all the way up north. We can get out at 125th and cross. We smiled at each other for the first time in days. The dogs finally gave up on us and trotted back out to the street. We crossed to the other side of the building to raid the pharmacy. Dawn still insisted we go get Walt. The fifth floor was just as quiet as everywhere else. Windows were smashed open and trash littered the hallway. But there were only two bodies rotting in the hall. One man had shards of glass sticking out of his back and had collapsed right outside the door, like he'd stumbled out into the hallway after seeing something terrible. There was only one patient, abandoned in a hospital bed, likely after having been wheeled into the hallway for protection. The patient looked unharmed. Stuck in the bed, he'd probably starve to death. Maybe the man with the glass in his back was the one meant to wheel him to safety. I pictured the bed-bound patient, stuck there as he watched his only hope of survival bleed to death right there on the floor. Don unlocked the pharmacy with a code, and we went inside. While Don carefully moved from shelf to shelf, selecting what he thought would be the best for Walt's treatment, I ransacked the place. Without reading the labels, I grabbed as many pill bottles as I could and stuffed them into the duffel. After we got the drugs from the pharmacy, we made our way back to the ground floor and crossed the atrium. We take the tunnel that led back to the Hess building and the animal facility. The less time spent outside, the better. As part of my training, I was taught some of the things HIV does to a person's body after it has ravaged their immune system. Infections take hold, overrun their bodies, use them as a breeding ground. Most of these are internal, but not all. During later stages of the disease, some patients develop rashes, skin lesions, carposy sarcoma. Large, black, painfully obvious splotches that grow on their skin, walking flower beds of infection. Within hours after the Enola Gay dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, survivors started arriving at the few hospitals that remained open. Within a few days, these survivors showed signs of a disease that no one had seen before. They called it Disease X. Radiation poisoning had never been studied in humans before. The tunnel was dark, and I pulled the flashlight out of the duffel. No matter where I let the round beam of light settle ahead of us, it landed on a dead body. A blonde on a hospital bed, her hair sprawling on her head in wispy patches her hollow eyes staring back at us. A man slumped over against the wall, head bent, in a puddle of dried liquid. Bodies covered in scabs and dark purple spots anywhere their skin was exposed. The flashlight cast their shadows in a long row along the wall. These were the people who had survived the explosion, who had made it to the hospital searching for survival. They probably didn't even realize how sick they were when they got here. The air was so still as we passed by the procession of crumpled bodies. They didn't look like the bodies outside. Not charred, blackened by fire, but like they were just pretending to play dead. There were bowls of food, half-eaten, sitting next to them on the ground. Children were huddled in their parents' arms as if for warmth, 
forever children. Some of the dead had white coats on, and I watched as Don glanced at the names embroidered on their breast pockets. He didn't say anything as we passed, but I saw him flinch in recognition every few seconds. Human hair hushed across the floor ahead of us like dust bunnies. The tunnel stank, but we had grown used to terrible smells. We also knew the basement would be far, far worse. We passed through the tunnel as quickly as we could, following the pink strip painted to the wall, the color connecting Hess to the main hospital. When we got to the stairs that led to the animal facility, Kevin seemed to realize where we were going and started shaking. His entire body convulsed and he kept whimpering, No, Kevin, no! Over and over again. Finally, Don and I decided it was best if Don went down on his own to get Walt. Just ten minutes later, he returned without him, and when I looked at him, he just shook his head. It was the last time he tried to save someone with such determination. We waited for dusk in hopes that the dogs were not nocturnal, and then started in on the short walk to the six-train station on 96 and Lex. It had started to feel like an endless pilgrimage, this going from one place to another, this discovery of disastrous scenes everywhere we went. We didn't even know where we were going or what we'd do once we arrived. I just wanted to curl up in a big, comfortable bed somewhere, close my eyes, and sleep. The Geiger counter continued to click at high speeds as we walked through the streets. When we went down the stairs to the ticket platform, we stopped short, surprised. A young man was leaned against the turnstiles. His hair was cut short, shaved close around the edges. He was wearing a pale blue t-shirt and khakis, arms crossed. A black handkerchief covered his face and mouth. A Geiger counter dangled from a string around his neck. It was one of the more modern ones, dwarfed by our clunky device, and I suddenly felt wholly unprepared compared to this guy. He'd clearly been better prepped for the disaster than us. After the tunnel of dead people, he looked so full of life that it was hard to take in his existence. We stared at him like he wasn't real, but he didn't seem surprised to see us at all. Before we could ask him who he was, how he had survived, what he knew about what was going on, he spoke. There's a fee, he said, pointing towards the stairs leading down to the platform. My mouth gaped open. You're kidding, right? I touched Don's arm. The man looked up at the ceiling, as if to think it over, then back at us and shook his head. Nope, not kidding. A harsh chuckle. He hopped down from the turnstile to see what goods we were carrying, came close before we could say another word. He had an overly cocky strut, like someone who was used to being in charge, or like someone who just thought he knew something the others in the room didn't. We backed up. Hey, chill out. I take a fee, and you get to pass. That's it. That's all I'm asking. No one needs to get hurt here. He held up his palms like he was saying, Look, I'm unarmed. The thought hadn't even crossed my mind. I held Kevin close to me, my fingers digging into Don's arm, huddled together like scared children. He doesn't look like your kid, lady. Are you picking up strays? 
That's very nice of you. He smiled at me like we were having a pleasant conversation, then continued to unzip the duffel bag and inspected our belongings with great care, as if we were at a flea market and he was looking through my wares. I'll take these and these. Thank you very much. Then, whistling slowly through his front teeth, you guys have quite a stash here, huh? My stomach tightened. He took some of the pill bottles, which looked random to me. Don shot me a look. Too preoccupied with finding Walt's medication, he hadn't seen me take them. All right, then, good luck out there. He made a show of bowing as we awkwardly scrambled over the turnstiles. We walked down the stairs as quickly as we could, without making it too obvious that we were scared. The platform was pitch black except for the faint glow from the stairs, and empty, like a train had just pulled out of the station. Who was that man? Kevin asked. He was just making sure we paid for the train. Don explained and squeezed my shoulder in the dark. We're taking the train? The boy had found his voice. He sounded scared. No, but we pay to use the tunnel. Don didn't sound so sure, and Kevin didn't ask any more questions. I sat on the yellow strip of the platform and pushed myself onto the tracks. The rocks crunched around my ankles. I turned, and Don lifted Kevin into my arms. Once we'd started walking into the uptown tunnel, it seemed safe enough to talk. What did he take? Like, strong aspirin, basically. When did you take all those pills? When you were looking for Walt's stuff at the pharmacy. Don harumphed. A conversation for a later day. Do you think he even knew what he was taking? The knots in my stomach grew tighter. I don't think that's what you take if you did. The words sounded like they were moving left to right, like Don was shaking his head as he spoke. The gray glow of the tunnel entrance started to disappear in the distance. We used the slippery tracks to guide us, stumbling through the dark. We didn't dare turn on the flashlight. Something about the man at the station had felt dangerous. He had been too slick, too at ease with the whole situation, and getting away from him had been too easy. Despite his careful inspection, he had taken things of little value, as if it didn't really matter what he chose back there. We had been walking for another ten minutes when we heard it. Sure-footed, striding through the dark, footsteps that were heading straight for us. They were gaining ground fast, and it sounded like there was more than just one.